0: When I put in my first report in 2008 to all the Premiers and the Prime Minister, I I began the letter, uh, the covering letter, with a reference to an old Australian saying. I, I said, an old dog for a hard road. I was already an old dog then. Uh, I had no idea that I'd still be on the road uh, uh, 13 years later. but. Once you realise how important this issue is, uh, the world dealing with climate change, Australia being part of that global effort, it won't let you go.
1: Hi, I'm Kaya Taylor and this is Rewired, a show exploring the future of energy in Australia from ARENA, the Australian Renewable Energy Agency. Today as we look back at 10 years since ARENA was first established, in our final episode of this season, we're speaking with a very special guest. Ross Garneau is one of the most important names in Australia's clean energy journey. Ross is Emeritus Professor of Economics at the University of Melbourne and also at the Australian National University. He's also on the board for Zen Energy, a zero emissions energy provider. And most notably, Ross is responsible for the Garno Climate Change Review, which examined the impact of climate change on the Australian economy. He's someone with strong ideas on Australia's approach to renewables, and spends a lot of time looking at the macro impact of renewables on the energy sector. But Ross's journey into clean energy started back in the 80s.
0: I was Bob Hawke's economic advisor in the first couple of years of his government, and uh I uh, first uh, ran into the issue in those days because we had a science minister who was actually the first science minister in the world to uh, be talking in a parliament about how serious this issue was. That was Barry Jones, and uh, uh, so uh, the science minister's uh, uh, concern for climate change was the beginnings of my awareness. I must say uh, it was a uh, low burn awareness uh, for quite a while. I I followed developments uh, at the Rio summit in 92, uh, uh, the series of uh, uh, UNFCCC meetings that culminated in Kyoto, uh, leading to the first attempt at an international agreement. I followed that as an interested bystander. Obviously these issues were very important for uh, economic development. How we handle them was going to be very important. Uh, But uh, I I wasn't deeply engaged, I was probably as engaged as the uh, average informed Australian seeking to uh, take an interest in the big issues of the world. I became more deeply engaged when I was chair of the International Food Policy Research Institute. I played a role on the board of uh, IFPRI, uh, that institute, uh, for seven years from 2003 to 2010. And uh, IFBRI's role was to uh, undertake research uh, on matters affecting food security all over the world. It was based in Washington, uh, but uh, we had major research efforts in in virtually all uh, developing countries. And uh, it became clear from that that work, uh, which uh, I took an interest in as chair of the board, not as a participant in the research, that the biggest threat to food security uh, in uh, the the developing world was climate change. The scientists uh, uh, working with the economists in the International Food Policy Research Institute were were seeing very large issues of risk of food security in Africa, South Asia, also actually in Australia, uh, three regions that were particularly vulnerable to climate change where climate disruption was likely to lead to uh, large uh, reductions in uh, food supply. Unfortunately for me uh, no one I I was working with took the Australian bit uh, very seriously. They thought we were a rich country that could look after itself and they saw the problem as South Asia and uh, and Africa. But the work at at that time, um, the engagement with uh, social scientists and scientists uh, dealing with the world uh, poverty and uh, food security issue was was my first deep immersion. It was during that time that I was asked, uh, first of all by the states and territories, uh, to do my first climate change review. The approach was made by Anna Bly from Queensland, but it was on behalf of six states and two territories, an unusual exercise in... uh, cross-Australia cooperation uh, and there was an invitation for the Commonwealth to join the exercise. The uh, the Howard government declined but uh, Kevin Rudd as leader of the opposition said that the Commonwealth would join the exercise if uh, uh, he became Prime Minister at the elections due towards the end of 2007 and so uh, uh, then it became a Commonwealth state exercise but that, that was my first deep Immersion in the subject. Uh, the first time uh, my mind was uh, uh, on little else. And uh, once you get involved in this uh, subject, you realise it's so important that your mind stays on it. And that's where I've been ever since.
1: The Garno Climate Change Review was a pivotal document in Australia's approach to climate change. It's been called one of the most important climate change documents ever produced in Australia and outlined a number of ways that Australia could work to reduce emissions. So what does Ross think about Australia's progress? How has his perception changed in the years since the report was published? And is he more optimistic about Australia's ability to tackle this problem than he was at the time?
0: I realised this was going to be a really hard issue. Uh, Hard for a number of reasons. One... The adjustment costs came early and the, and the benefits of avoiding climate change came late and humans aren't used to taking really long-term decisions. And uh, we're not used to uh, taking into account the effects of our decisions on uh, future generations. And that's what you have to do if you take this issue seriously. If you thought that nothing mattered that happened in the world beyond 20 or 30 years' time, then you might think it was an issue you didn't have to worry too much about. There'd be some inconvenience and disruption. And remember, we were having this discussion in in, uh, 2007, 2008, so 20 years' time was 2027. Uh, You you could sort of get by without uh, thinking hard about a very hard issue. Uh, And that's what uh, financial markets tend to do, they're quite myopic, Um, investors uh, for example in uh, equities, uh, in shares in companies, uh, tend to apply discount rates of 5, 6, 7 uh, uh, percent. If you're making decisions applying those sorts of discount rates, discounting the future Uh, then nothing that happens in 50 years' time matters. I I remember my second climate change review, which was for the Multi-Party Committee on Climate Change, chaired by Prime Minister Julia Gillard. In one of the earlier meetings, I I was talking about the discount rate and how important it was to have a clear view of uh, how you valued the future relative to the present, and eyes were glazing over. The prime minister in the chair. Uh, the, the treasurer who was there. The minister for climate change, Greg Combé, here uh, uh, representing the Greens. There was uh, Christine Milne and Adam Bant, and uh, a couple of independents from the Parliament, uh, Tony Windsor and Rob Oakshot. And uh, uh, and then I said, if you uh, uh, if you use a discount rate of around seven uh, percent, which is sort of discount rate that uh, equity markets uh, tend to apply. Uh, then you would not do anything about climate change, uh, even if you knew uh, with a high degree of certainty that uh, uh, not dealing with it would lead to the extinction of our species in 100 years' time. And uh, the Prime Minister grinned and said, well, you've got us there now, Ross. We're all against the extinction of our species.
1: So you you brought the attention back into the room through that?
0: Yes, and... uh, so it was always going to be a hard issue, uh, uh, and also it was complicated because uh, it was an international issue. What what one country did wouldn't solve the problem. What what one country did mattered. Uh, every ton of carbon dioxide that goes into the air uh, makes things worse for hundreds of years. So it, what an individual does actually matters, and some of the great ethicists of uh, our times, uh, Professor. John Broome, professor of uh, uh, of moral philosophy at Oxford, um, Pope Francis have made exactly this point that uh, you don't know who will be damaged by the extra ton of carbon dioxide you put in the air, uh, where they are, or uh, or when it will happen, but you are damaging other people, and uh, and so there's a moral responsibility to avoid uh, uh, doing it. But the the fact that it's a global externality with uh, uh, the emissions in uh, uh, in Hungary or Argentina having as much effect on everyone in the world as the emissions in Australia it makes it an unusual sort of a problem. It's different from other environmental problems. Uh, air pollution in cities, uh, the damage that one car or one factory does uh, affects people in the neighborhood uh, and, 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 and you can see the effects and do something about it. This one it's a global effect, and you need global cooperation uh, to, to stop the problem. Uh, you don't need global cooperation to make a start on, uh, uh, on a uh, solution, but everyone's got to, got to be part of it, or at least every substantial country, if you're going to stop it. So it's always going to be a very hard problem. I, I wouldn't describe my feelings at the time of the report as, as optimistic. Also, at the time, uh, the very detailed modelling that we did uh, the most detailed long-term modeling of the Australian economy that that had been done up to that time, and and you could still say the same thing now, began as modeling we did for the review. Uh, but uh, then the Treasury joined us. So it became the Gauna Treasury modeling uh, uh, once the Commonwealth joined. That... Uh, modelling showed that uh, there'd be a significant cost of doing something about it uh, over several decades, and then we'd get that back with a lot more from the benefits of avoiding climate change later on, the second half of the century. So that that made it a hard issue to to deal with. Now, the biggest thing that's changed since then is that the cost of... uh, Renewable energy, uh, zero emissions transport, uh, uh, some zero emissions industries turned out to be lower than the the cost of uh, of energy of transport of some industry would have been under the old technology. So so that we greatly exaggerated the costs at the time and uh, if we were doing the same exercise today... Uh, I, I'd start with, a, uh, with more optimism because I, I would know that the costs of doing something about the problem weren't as great as we, as we modelled back in 2007 and 2008.
1: So sticking with that theme of, of I guess, surprise then <laughs> in terms of, uh, of, of an emotion perhaps over the, over the past few years. So what has surprised you?
0: I suppose my biggest surprise is that um, how... Uh, the contemporary Australian uh, political system can downgrade knowledge, uh, uh, can allow a vested interest to dominate discussion of an important policy issue to the extent that it has. I wasn't naive about those things. I knew that uh, when any uh, area of business had to make some adjustment in the national interest, they would invest very heavily in the political process to try to stop that. Uh, I'd been in the front line uh, with with Bob Hawke in the reductions of protection in Australia in the eighties, and uh, uh, and I knew uh, how much uh, 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 protected businesses were prepared to uh, invest in the political process to to stop change that was in the national interest, but in their private uh, interests. But I, I suppose I was I've been surprised at. How ignorance was able to dominate the discussion, uh, uh, obfuscation uh, supported by by uh, private interests, uh, really from uh, from about uh, the end of 2009 uh, through to today. That was one surprise. Uh, I suppose that was a surprise about the weakness and uh, vulnerability of our democracy. But uh, there was a real surprise about how rapidly uh, costs of uh, energy and some other zero emissions goods and services came down. It's not uh, unique. In fact, in the first report, I talked about uh, how uh, introductions of new technologies were often associated with very large reductions of of costs. And and in our modelling, which modelled the effects of costs and benefits of dealing with climate change right through the uh, 21st century, uh, we had to build in assumptions about rates of improvement of technology. And for the first couple of decades, we'd written in assumptions of uh, a few percent per annum uh, uh, reductions in costs uh, in solar energy associated with uh, with the new technologies, uh, increased scale of production, bring down costs. We, we knew that that was going to be important, uh, but uh, the rate of reduction greatly exceeded anything we had in mind. Uh, at the time my report came out, there, there was some criticism that we'd over the pudding, that we were exaggerating the reduction in costs at a few percent per annum. But as it turned out, in the first 10 years after the report came out, uh, uh, the, the costs of solar energy came down around 85% far in excess of uh, what we were anticipating. There was no lo- There's no law of economics or physics that says that uh, when you introduce a new technology, you will get reductions on that scale. Sometimes you do. Uh, we've had it now for a long time with computers and mobile phones and so on. But there's a lot of other areas of technology where you where you don't get such dramatic uh, reductions in costs. As it's turned out, the areas that are important to transition to a zero emissions economy uh, were able to achieve much more rapid uh, rates of reduction of costs uh, than anticipated and that was a pleasant surprise. I was gradually becoming aware of the divergence between our own uh, uh, work on costs and uh, what was actually happening, um, really, from the early years after the report. But uh, by about 2015, it was evident to me, uh, well, before that, that, uh, that the reductions in costs were transformational and that that was going to have a very big effect on the opportunity that Australia had as a supplier of zero emissions uh, goods into a zero emissions world. And uh, and so it was in uh, June, 2015, that I made my first elaborate public statement on those things. I, I gave the FAVA lecture at the engineering school at the University of Adelaide called um, Australia, a superpower of uh, the zero emissions world economy.
1: You wrote a book about the, the opportunity to become a renewable superpower. Has anything shifted for you since that talk in 2015, publishing the book in 2019? Do you still hold that vision for Australia?
0: The main thing that's changed is that um, the opportunities become clearer and larger. For example, uh, in the book, uh, I talked about how uh, in a zero emissions economy, uh, it was likely that um, one of the routes to Uh, decarbonisation of iron and steel was going to be use of zero emissions uh, hydrogen rather than coking coal to uh, uh, take the oxygen out of iron ore and uh, leave iron metal. About seven percent of global emissions are just from that process uh, uh, using uh, coke to uh, reduce iron oxide, iron ore to iron metal and the most promising alternative technology is to to use hydrogen to do that, and if you make the hydrogen from renewable energy, it's zero emissions uh, hydrogen hydrogen zero emissions iron. Well, I discussed that as a, a possibility, even talked about uh, uh, the the gains to Australia if we. Uh, processed a quarter of our iron ore in that way. Australia is by far the world's biggest exporter of uh, iron ore. China produces more than half the world's primary iron uh, and steel and uh, Australia is by far the biggest supplier of iron ore to to China. So so just converting uh, a quarter of our uh, iron ore into iron metal uh, would have created a huge industry in Australia. Since then, there's been uh, uh, continued uh, research uh, and development and, and and the early stages of commercialisation of this technology. The big industrial countries of the Northern Hemisphere, China, Japan, Korea, Germany, uh, are beginning to realise that um, hydrogen will be the root of decarbonisation uh, and that uh, it's going to be very difficult for them to uh, produce enough... Uh, hydrogen at low cost to do it themselves and so uh, importing uh, hydrogen or importing processed uh, uh, zero emissions iron is going to be the way that they decarbonize their industries Uh, that uh, a big penny that that has to drop uh, and it's uh, fallen a fair way uh, in the few years since uh, superpower was published
1: So obviously we hear a lot about hydrogen from from an export perspective, but what is the domestic opportunity for hydrogen?
0: Hydrogen is going to play a a very large role in many areas of uh, decarbonisation, probably going to be uh, important in long-distance surface transport. That may turn out to be uh, the main one. could play a role in... uh, uh, storing hydrogen and using it for thermal power generation, but that's going to be expensive, and it, I, I would expect that uh, batteries and pumped hydro storage are going to be a good deal cheaper than that in the end. But there'll be places uh, where uh, backup of uh, of other systems of firming uh, with hydrogen could be important. It's going to be to play some role in uh, in heating. Uh, although I think we'll find that uh, many uses, uses of uh, coal and gas for heating are going to be replaced by electrical processes, uh, and uh, direct use of renewable energy will turn out to be more important. But there will be some role for hydrogen in that. But uh, the, the really big one for Australia is going to be uh, export of uh, uh, of goods uh, that uh, that embody. Uh, renewable hydrogen in their production. The very big one, iron. We can contribute uh, by processing our own iron ore into a simple iron metal in Australia. Uh, we, we can reduce global emissions by more than twice as much as by reducing our own emissions to zero. Uh, so so uh, it, it's big in a global mitigation context big in terms of the economy because you would more than double the value of our most important uh, export, uh, and uh, uh, big in terms of uh, the, the domestic economy. So, so there's a domestic role for hydrogen but the really big one will be uh, as an input into uh, uh, exports of products.
1: And when you when you when you spoke to that a moment ago, you talked about processing. And for our listeners, processing in Australia is not something that we've previously done a lot of. Is that right?
0: Oh well, we once did. We've got the very wide, always been uh, important internationally as a source of uh, a wide range of uh, minerals. And uh, in, in the old economy, the fossil uh, carbon economy, you used uh, coal or. Uh, Or heat from coal or electricity from coal for a lot of the processing uh, so that a lot of our non-ferrous metals um, copper early copper nickel uh, others later on uh, went out as processed metals we became the world's biggest exporter of aluminium metal in the 80s largely because Japan had been the Western world's biggest producer of aluminium in the 70s uh, used uh, oil and, uh, uh, and coal to uh, make the electricity, to make the aluminium, uh, but realised that that was polluting their cities. And so uh, they deliberately uh, introduced tough environmental policies that drove their aluminium industry offshore, and we became the world's biggest exporter of aluminium with new plants in uh, Portland, several in uh, Newcastle, a uh, big one in, in Gladstone. Uh, so we, we, and even iron and steel. Uh, if you go back a hundred years, we had we've got the world's best resources of metallurgical coal for making coke for processing uh, steel out of uh, of iron ore, uh, uh, and uh, uh, we we had uh, a steel industry that was uh, competitive in export markets uh, uh, for a range of products a uh, hundred years ago. Over recent times uh we've tended to focus much more on exports of raw minerals and so the proportion of australian minerals that are processed is very small now compared with even 20 years ago uh, certainly compared with uh uh with, with uh, 60 years ago and that's because uh the opportunities for importing raw minerals became richer with especially with the growth of uh, strong markets in uh North East Asia and especially in China became much more profitable to export the, the, the raw minerals and uh, wh- when you mine and uh, export minerals you can generate what economists call rent. It often doesn't cost much to produce them but you get a very high price for selling them and Australia uh, unlike a lot of other countries doesn't uh, do much to tax the rents from minerals and so the profitability of raw minerals production is extremely high. A company like BHP, which uh, used to be a miner and a uh, processor, found it they got higher returns on equity, uh, though more profitable if they put their capital just into the raw material stage and got rid of the processing. So what we'll be doing is partly going back to the future, but going going beyond anything in the past uh, and, uh, of course, doing it with new technologies uh, so that uh, we, we, uh, uh, we're doing it with zero emissions, avoiding pollution here in Australia and playing a major role in decarbonisation of the rest of the world in activities that otherwise they would find it hard to decarbonise.
1: Australians are right now bracing themselves for the impact rising power prices will have on their bills. We've seen some providers even tell customers to shift to other companies so they can ride out the wave caused by issues with global supply of coal and gas. It's clear that there's a lot of global turmoil for traditional energy sources. So when we think about everyday households in Australia, what does the energy future look like?
0: that's very complicated and it's going to be very difficult in the short term Uh, there are things that governments could do that uh, made it much less uh, difficult for households but whether they'll do them we'll have to wait and see Uh, but uh, one thing that the ukraine invasion by russia has done and then the restrictions on russian coal and uh, gas exports has contributed to a huge increase in coal and gas prices and as I mentioned before, that's on top of uh, what were higher prices anyway. Uh, but in Australia, coal and gas prices are determined by export price, or at least in Eastern Australia, a bit different in WA because of the uh, the reservation of a proportion of gas for domestic use. But uh, in um, Eastern Australia, uh, a coal or a gas company can get uh, the international price for exports and, and requires the international price to uh, uh, sell to the domestic market. So uh, it doesn't take long for uh, a 400% increase in uh, coal or gas prices to li- in, in in the world economy to lead to a 400% uh, increase in prices here. And that's happened. Uh, that means that, uh, uh, of course, it, it's gone up much more than that uh, in the short term for gas uh, Uh, because there was scarcity on top of uh, higher world prices. Uh, But uh, uh, let's say it settles down and uh, all we get passed back to Australia is the increase in world prices. Uh, That's still going to be uh, a a huge increase. For part of the time, uh, in uh, each of the Australian states, um, some gas is necessary to uh, keep the balance between supply and demand for power. Uh, that gas is bid into the market uh, at a price that uh, uh, covers the cost of gas and if that's if the cost of gas has gone up 400% they uh, uh, the the price of the gas electricity will go up 400% and that means that all power prices go up 400% because it's the the marginal supplier of electricity that determines the price now when uh, we've got enough renewable electricity to supply all of demand, uh, the price is very low. We see that pretty frequently in, in South Australia where there's so much uh, solar and wind that um, that basically meets demand uh, and uh, that sets the price. So at those times, the price is very low. It can even be negative uh, at, at times. But if demand is bigger than that, then uh, you, you need coal power and so uh, that's bid into the market at the the cost of coal, which has gone up 400% in Queensland and New South Wales. Not in Victoria, because uh, Victoria's power uh, coal is not exported and uh, uh, it's made available at the cost of production. Uh, but in Queensland and uh, New South Wales, uh, a, a miner of coal has a choice between exporting it and selling it to a generator and uh, price... Uh, of of coal in generation has uh, gone up hundreds of percent. So the price of coal-based power. So if you need uh, coal as well as uh, renewables, the price of all power is the uh, the cost of the uh, the coal-based power. And then when you need even more power, when coal and renewables can't do it, you need gas. Then the cost of all of the power is the much higher price of uh, power generated from gas and as i mentioned that's gone up hundreds of percent it won't uh, immediately go through to everyone's bills these increases of hundreds of percent in the wholesale price of power because the regulators uh, take account of the fact that, that a lot of the uh, the coal and gas is purchased on long-term contracts uh, and and so it will be phased in uh, so uh, relentlessly uh, over the next uh, couple of years we'll see higher and higher prices in people's bills it will uh, effectively transfer a few percent of national income from ordinary households to the uh, gas and coal producers and uh, uh, the only that would require major changes of Commonwealth policy to do that Uh, gas reservation or or some form of export levy the some some mechanism for driving a wedge between international and domestic prices. And that would be a big change in policy. But that will, is what would be necessary to uh, uh, stop the increase in prices. Uh, the, all of that will be debated in the months ahead in Australia, but it's, it's hard to see uh, any outlook that's not quite severe in the short term. We've uh, had the experience over the last few years of uh, whenever a coal generator closes, there's a period of shortage in higher prices, and then prices gradually come down as the renewable supply expands. They come down more and faster the bigger the increase in renewable supply, but we'll only have stable and low prices when we've got a 100% renewable system. Uh, and... Uh, Uh, If we're wise, we'll have that by the mid-30s, but until then uh, we're going to see a seesaw uh, or a sawtooth uh, pattern of uh, prices with uh, uh, coal closures being associated with a spike, uh, prices coming down as renewables expand. If there was a way of compressing the transition, having it happen in a shorter period of time, uh, then we'd have those low and stable prices earlier, but uh, we can't do it overnight.
1: Do you think that this is a, you know, a, an opportunity to potentially accelerate the transition to be able to see the, those prices, you know, stabilize a little bit in the in the next few years? Is could this be a, a slightly perhaps left a field or or perhaps, you know, 12 months ago, an unpredicted opportunity to really, you know, shift gears?
0: I think the lift in global coal and uh, gas prices was passed through to the Australian market uh, strengthens the case, strengthens the economic case for accelerating the transition. If we're wise, that's what we'll do. Do I uh, predict that we will be wise? Uh, well that would have been a wrong prediction if we'd predicted wisdom 10 years ago the human species is complex and is capable of learning so maybe we've learned from those 10 years and we'll be wise this time
1: You've been in this in this space for for quite some time now Ross and what excites you and and what keeps you going
0: When I put in my first report in 2008 to all the premiers and the prime minister I I began the letter, uh, the covering letter, with a reference to an old Australian saying. I, I said, an old dog for a hard road. I was already an old dog then. Uh, I had no idea that I'd still be on the road uh, uh, 13 years later. But once you realise how important this issue is, uh, the world dealing with climate change, Australia being part of that global effort it won't let you go it's uh it makes its own compelling case for continued engagement uh while there's hope there's no point in hopelessness so i i I suppose that's what kept me going while there was a chance of success uh, the consequences of failure were so large that uh one had uh, little personal choice but uh, as I mentioned in the course of this discussion um, uh, about eight years ago it started to become clear to me that uh, if we did it right uh, the economic benefits to my country were going to be immense that us making use of that opportunity would make a big contribution to the global decarbonisation effort. And I I suppose that's the element of excitement. Uh, Not only did we have to do this because the consequences of not doing it were extremely severe, uh, but if we got it right, uh, we could open up a, a prosperous future for our children and grandchildren. And with With uh, seven grandchildren between the ages of 10 and 17, one's mind comes to think about the the world that they will be living, uh, living in lots of the time.
1: Thanks to Ross Garnot for joining us for this episode. Rewired is brought to you by ARENA, the Australian Renewable Energy Agency, working to support Australia's energy transition since 2012. This episode was hosted by me, Kaya Taylor, with production and scripting from the team at Lawson Media. That's all we have for this season. If you've enjoyed the conversations and want to learn more about the transformers working to change our energy grid, or the projects that ARENA is funding, you can find out more on our website, arena.gov.au. Thanks for listening.